transforming the ghetto, therefore, is a problem of power. Confrontation between the forces of power demanding change and the forces of power dedicated to the preserving of the status quo. You've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machines will be prevented from working at all. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. No justice! Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sometimes People Win, Episode 1. I'm your host, Alex Storr, and with me is my co-host, Max Jackson. How are you, Max? I'm doing pretty good. Alex, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I may have um, sweat my face off on the walk to get here to the recording studio, but... Other than that, I'm I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, and that's kind of weird to look at because your face is actually like shifted down, <laughs> and it's just like something's really going on here. Um, see, folks, in Orlando, it's really hot, and that's basically what we talk about. We get together and we talk about the weather, and uh, we go together and we make podcasts where we talk about the weather. But yeah, that's that's neither here nor there. We've got a lot of interesting stuff to talk to you about today. We're going to highlight some really interesting movements. Uh, from across the nation, and we're going to get into a really interesting interview. Uh, Alex, can you tell us about what kind of interview we've got going on today? Yeah, sure. Uh, so we, our main segment for today is going to be talking about the Lake Pickett developments, uh, which was a basically a suburban housing development that was supposed to go in in the Lake Pickett area, which is in East Orange County. Uh, so we're in Orlando, Florida, uh, for those of you who are listening from outside of our region. Um, so Orlando is in the center of Orange County, which is basically a rectangle. And over in the northeast corner of this rectangle um, is kind of more of a uh, sort of rural area. And a lot of people kind of like living there because it's more of a sort of rural lifestyle. Um, But it's close enough to Orlando that they can still kind of uh, loop in and be involved with all the city stuff. Yeah, so, for those of you who don't know, Orlando is actually a pretty large city, like spatially. It's very spread out. we got a lot of right. highways going around there, right. and you, you have to have a car to get around. Um, what most people would probably consider to be Orlando would be uh, the southeast side, that's, or excuse me, the southwest side. I'm totally from here. I swear I know what I'm talking about. Um, the southwest side is where we have all the tourist stuff. It's where we have Disney. It's where we have Universal Studios. Um, that's usually where people come to visit. Um, and But network, for us right now, we're recording this in downtown Orlando, basically right in the dead center of everything. Now on the east side you have uh, the University of Central Florida, one of the largest uh, institutions in the uh, in the United States. Uh, but then after that, it turns into it turns into a very you know, sort of pastoral area, very rural, and right. uh, that's where a lot of these events took place. Right, and uh, so our main interview is going to be with Orange County Commissioner Emily Bonilla, who is very involved in the movement to take on and stop those developments. Um, But before we get into that, we're going to move on to our first segment of the day, which is our movement highlight. Okay, so the movement that we'd like to highlight for this episode is the No Justice, No Pride movement. Um, So... As you might know, June is Pride Month, so uh, a lot of 
gay pride parades all throughout the country. Um, some of the bigger ones are occurring uh, today as we're recording this, um, which is on Sunday, June 25th. So the New York City Pride Parade and the San Francisco Pride Parade are both happening today. But earlier in the month, uh, some of these Pride Parades have actually been disrupted. Uh, do you want to talk a little about those disruptions, Max? Sure. Yeah, so here we have the No Justice, No Pride uh, movement. One of their big things was actually blocking the Washington, D.C. Pride Parade route. They actually joined their hands together and got in the way, and nobody could get around them. Four protesters were actually arrested um, at the Columbus Pride. Uh, that, that happened actually pretty recently as well. And all sorts of stuff like this happened across mm -hmm. the nation. Uh, we had Minneapolis Pride organizers um, actually ended up asking the local police to limit their participation in the wake of the Philando Castile verdict. you want to talk a little bit about that? Right. Um, as you guys have probably heard, there was uh, recently a... Um, the. Uh, excuse me, the jury passed down a not guilty verdict um, for, I believe, manslaughter charges against the officer who shot and killed Philando Castile um, in Minnesota, I believe, last year. Um, and that, I think, has, has very rightly caused a lot of um, indignation and anger and fear uh, from, from a lot of people. And so... I think it's it's interesting that the people organizing Pride in Minneapolis were perhaps perhaps had a heightened awareness of that sort of uh, tension between communities of color and the police and law enforcement um, because of that recent event, and they were trying to sort of be aware of that as it related to their Pride parade, probably because of a lot of these things that have been happening with the No Justice No Pride movement, which I, I think is is essentially. Uh, kind of protesting the big corporation sort of capitalist takeover of uh, Pride Month, essentially. Um, how a lot of big businesses have kind of embraced the um, embraced the gay pride moniker and you know turned their logos rainbow during June. Um, but regardless of that, they're still uh, participating in what many see as um, a oppressive system that you know doesn't really matter if they're participating in pride or not they're still oppressing people and i think that's what one of the big things this movement is trying to protest um yeah yeah absolutely else? yeah the this kind of highlights a couple of tensions in the way that uh the gay pride movement has sort of unfolded uh the the, the main thing that these people are trying to call attention to is sort of the way that the, the movement has uh, shifted and altered as it has been integrated into mainstream society. Um, a lot of people have said that the key for uh, winning gay rights is to integrate gays into the major institutions uh, of America, to integrate them into the military, integrate them into marriage, um, integrate them into this, into that. And then once that is done, then the rest will effectively take care of itself. Um, however, what we've sort of seen, or at least what the No Justice, No Pride organizers claim to have, that we have seen, is that uh, what, what this has done is sort of dilute the movement into uh, saying that it's okay to be gay or whatever if you're gay within this specific and extremely socially acceptable way. And all other gay, if, if uh, basically we, we can now declare victory for these specific types of gays. Now, of course, they're talking about um, white, cisgender, able-bodied men for the most part. Um, these sort of gay ubermensch that, you know, these, these are the kind of gay people that we want and all other gay people are basically going to be marginalized and sidelined anyway. Um, so basically what we found is basically just we, we've taken the, we've taken like cisgendered white men, already the most uh, 
some of the most privileged people on the planet and then just said, okay, gay, gay cisgendered white men are now welcome and everybody else is, is no longer welcome. But, but then that, that's what sort of has, has led people to say that, hey, this, this movement has not done yet. Just because these people are accepted in right. these institutions does not necessarily mean that the movement is done, we can all declare victory and go home. And then, of course, there's the other broader issue of uh, sort of consumer capitalism. Uh, what a lot of the organizers would say is that uh, uh, within, within our contemporary capitalistic society, um, ethical choices are reduced to consumer choices. Um, so you the, your, moral, your morality is 100% expressed through what you purchase. So here, over here is, are the TV shows and the serials that you buy if you support traditional families, whereas over here you have the TV shows you watch and the serials you buy if you support uh, gay rights. And that's basically what you do, is what sort of individual products do you buy that may have absolutely nothing to do with the issue at hand, um, but, that but that nevertheless are taken to represent uh, moral conscious action. And so the these are the sort of issues that the No Justice, No Pride movement has been attempting to highlight. And so far, I think they've done a quite a good job in terms of uh, calling out the role that uh, so, uh, corporate corporation and corporate corporatization, for lack of a better word, um, and even conservatism have played in uh, in sort of shaping the direction that these movements have taken as time has gone on. Right. Yeah, I think I agree with a lot of what you just said there, Max. And I would like to add that, um, kind of in closing, that it seems like one of the issues that this No Justice, No Pride movement is bringing up is how um, sort of contemporary neoliberalism has this idea, like you were saying, that um, you know, as long as we have people of color in positions of power, as long as we have LGBT folks in positions of power, that that will um, that that will move toward equality. Yeah. I think what what that misses is that you know it doesn't really matter if you have an oppressive system. It doesn't really matter how diverse the oppressors are mm -hmm. if there is oppression going yeah. on. Um, and I think that that this movement, among other things, is doing a a, a good job of calling attention to that sort of uh, maybe fallacy within the way neoliberalism has, has developed. Right. So. Yeah, that's basically the idea is that uh, what we need to impose neoliberal meritocracy upon the oppressed classes so that the best, the good ones can escape, whereas now the bad ones can suffer as they deservedly should. That's the basic premise of meritocracy is that uh, the good ones prosper and the bad ones suffer. You have to have suffering in order for there to be... Uh, in order for there to be this sort of meritocratic framework imposed on things. And so that that can be a real dead end that a lot of movements go to. It's like, okay, we have one person from a heretofore oppressed minority in power. Therefore, all other people in that heretofore oppressed minority now deserve their oppressed status. Because if they really wanted to, uh, they could succeed beyond their wildest dreams just like this person does. Because That's look, a good point. Um, yeah, I, I, this could be you if you worked harder. but. Of course, that kind of ignores, uh, to come back to it, the kind of material conditions of oppression. Just because one uh, person is, one minority person is rich, uh, does not make the material conditions of all other, uh, all other people from within that class any better at all. Um, it doesn't guarantee them any more security. It doesn't guarantee them um, any more uh, capacity to address their problems without the precarity that comes from uh, material deprivation, which I think is what uh, really caught is that that's the dimension within which oppression is really uh, presents itself the strongest and is the condition for uh, why you know 
for example, uh, uh, racial slurs against black people have some sting because there used to be a literal whip behind them. Uh, whereas racial slurs against white people don't really land at home that much just because, you know, we were never really bought and sold, I, I think. That's kind of the way that I perceive this sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm very glad that it, for the attention that's been uh, brought to this, and hopefully this sort of thing can be used to uh, inspire broader consciousness of the issues at hand, and we'll see where things go from there. Sure, yeah. So, shout out to No Justice, No Pride, uh, our first movement highlight for episode one. And now let's move on to our main segment and discussion topic for the episode, which is the Lake Picket Developments. Okay, so we already explained a little bit about the layout of Orange County. So there were some developments called the Lake Picket Developments that were supposed to go in um, in that area of Orange County. Now, this was a long process. I believe the developments were initially proposed in 2013, and they were proposed kind of in two halves. There was a north half and a south half. Um, so the current, the current situation is that the south half was actually approved, but it's currently in a sort of legal limbo, and the north half um, was defeated by the county commission, um, really in response to the pressure that they received from this movement, which actually culminated in the election of a new um, county commissioner who unseated a conservative, pro-development, pro-business Republican. Um, now, these are nonpartisan elections, um, but you know we knew that he was a registered Republican. And Emily Bonilla, this commissioner that we're about to have an interview with, um, is a registered Democrat who did support um, Bernie Sanders in, in the primaries. And just to give you a sense of how strong this opposition movement was, um, she was able to unseat this incumbent commissioner um, who had raised approximately $350,000 for his campaign, um, and she beat him 57 to 43% in the uh, general election. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a very impressive movement in what it was able to do, and unlike most movements, it culminated in, a, in an electoral success that actually changed the composition of the body that had the power to make the decision. Did you have anything to add to that, Max, before we go on to the interview? No, this is that uh, actually changing the electoral landscape in some is quite more quite significant. It's something that a lot of uh, movements don't accomplish, and so I think it's really important and insightful to highlight what went well and uh, how these lessons can be applied to uh, broader movements across across the world. So let's get into it. All right, sounds good. I guess just to start off with. Um, seeing as we're hoping to have like a pretty broad audience, maybe people outside of, of, of Orange County, could you just um, maybe just introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about your, your story and, and what motivates you to do what you do? Okay. Um, so my name is Emily Bonilla. I'm Orange County Commissioner for District 5. I was elected November 8th. And before that, the way I got started was because I always wanted to move out of the city. I was born and raised in the city. It wasn't something that I wanted for my future or for my children's future. 
Um, it wasn't a place where I wanted to raise my, grow my family, raise my family. So it was always a dream to move out into the country and move out of the city. And East Orange County is the perfect place because it's country, it's rural, agricultural, and you get the best of both worlds because you drive a short distance and you're in the city of Orlando. So you get the best of both worlds. I mean, you, can, you can't find this in many other places. Um, but after moving there and buying six acres, I got a letter in the mail saying that they wanted to rezone about 4,000 acres into urban densities. And that would have ruined the whole lifestyle that I moved out there for. So I said, well, no way, this isn't gonna happen. I just moved here, I got my dream. Um, so I was determined at that point to do whatever I could to stop that and save my dream. So I attended a community meeting and there was a lot of people there and I started talking to neighbors and I said, we need to organize. I mean, this is the only way we can stop this and we need to organize and we should call ourselves Save East Orlando. So I created a Facebook page, got over 2,000 likes within one month, which gained media attention. And we got more neighbors, we started meeting regularly, um, organizing with signs, website, and everything. And with all the media attention and started a petition, petition got a lot of signatures, we started gaining momentum and gaining attention. But we had a commissioner who, regardless of what the people said, he wanted to push his own agenda. And it wasn't what the community wanted or needed or what was good for the community. It was whatever his agenda was, which was to urbanize that area. So I decided to run against him. And I ran against him. I ran a grassroots campaign. I raised only about, I think, $32,000. And he raised about 350000 and he raised, in one breakfast, he raised a lot of money. I think it was over $20,000. And so he was really good at raising money, but he was no longer a commissioner who was meeting or working with the constituents of what their needs or wants were. So he lost the election. Uh, when I won, there was a, he had still, I think, one more meeting between the election, me winning, and me taking office. So during, the development was separated into two sections, and they were voting on the, the north section at that meeting, because the south section was already approved. And because it was after, you know, during that time, that range, one of the other commissioners, Commissioner Siblin, saw what had happened um, and changed her vote. So we were able to get the north one voted down. That actually brings me to one of the questions I want to start off with, which is um, what is the current status of that? Because I, I had heard after the, uh, after the north part of the development was defeated uh, that there were, there were whispers that the whole thing only made sense if both of them were there and that the south one might like die or be reconsidered. Where, where does that stand right now? Well, the south one right now is, well, not in the courts, because technically they finished the court dates, but the attorneys have to put together, the attorneys from all parties have to put together a 
the script, and I forgot what it was called, but they need to turn that into the judge who then decides, um, makes her judgment. Okay, so did, uh, did, like, did someone sue, like, there was a, a lawsuit who was, who was suing It wasn't who? a lawsuit, it was or an appeal. An appeal, yeah. like an, an appeal, appeal of the decision? Yes, of an appeal board. of the commissioner's okay. decision. Interesting. So there, there's like a, there's a process for that yeah. then in the county law. Okay, cool. Still costs a lot of money though. Okay, so, so the north one is dead and the south one is still kind of in limbo. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess, how, it sounds like you were one of the, the leaders in the campaign to, to stop the developments, yes? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what what sort of strategies did that campaign use? And what do you think were some of the more effective ones? What do you think were some of the strategies that maybe weren't as effective? Um, so I had a marketing background. Well, I have a marketing background. And I brought a lot of that knowledge into the campaign. So the social media was one. Um, the website to keep people informed. The email newsletters, I made sure I had regular email newsletters go out, updating people what was going on. That was very important. I think it helped to keep people engaged. Um, the signs, we started doing signs, which it helped get people to realize that something was going on there. And I think all of it together. Okay, what, um what did your like face-to-face -face interaction with people look like over the course of that campaign? You said you had a mailing list, for example. Um, how are you, how are you getting these email addresses, and how are you finding the people that are that are joining in the movement? Um, sign up sheets. So wherever we went, um, we did sign up sheets to get people's email addresses. I, the petition, which because someone went ahead and set that up without me. Um, which I would have, because I was trying to do more research on it, and but they went ahead of me. And so, unfortunately, with change.org, you can't collect email addresses. So I went ahead and created a petition on the website that you could collect the email addresses. And so once I got that set up, I was able to collect people's email addresses to use it for the email newsletter. And then instead of sending people to the change.org, we sent them to the website. Okay, so... change.org, we couldn't. Gotcha. Um, so, um, I guess like when a lot of people think of a, of a grassroots movement to you know to stop a development or or really to do anything, a lot of people think of this whole sort of you know uh, hitting the ground, um, knocking on doors, that sort of thing. Um, is that is that what this campaign looked like, or was it more internet-based as far as with the um, online petition and with the website and all that? It was mostly internet-based. Okay. And also coming to the BCC meetings and talking with the commissioners. Um, to be honest, at the end of the day, it all came down to politics and just outing the commissioner. Because until then, we really couldn't get the commissioners to listen. So. Okay. Um, so did you did you organize groups of, um, I guess you could say, concerned citizens to attend some of these commission meetings yes. where where the development was up? Yeah, and, we had a, the red shirts. <laughs> right. What, what, what was that what was that like? Um, 
what was what were your best turnouts like, and how did you motivate those people to come out? Um, again, it was the the social media and email newsletters that got people to come out because that's how we communicated, and we had red shirts at the meeting to pass out to everybody. We had about three hundred people, I believe, show up, and about a hundred people signed up to speak. And which which meeting was that? That was one of the BCC meetings. Um, um, was it was it the one where like the? We were there to two in the morning. That one. Was it? I don't remember what date that was. Was it the one for the? Like where they were hold, having like the final vote on one of the parts of the development, or? I think it was during the transmittal. Okay, what what is that? So they go through two different meetings with the, in front of the BCC, okay. which is the Board of County Commissioners. They first have to go through a transmittal hearing, and if they get approved at the transmittal hearing, then they go to the state for review, and then the state, different state departments return comment letters to the county saying what looks good, what doesn't look good, what needs work, and then it goes to a, an approval hearing, which is your final hearing. Okay. I mean, there's in-between processes, too, but... Those are the ones that come before the BCC. So you were able to get 300 people to come to a commission meeting and, and 100 of them spoke? Or well, 100 didn't speak. They gave their car, their minutes up to somebody else. So it was oh, okay. like 100, yeah. But still, wow. Um, how, like, what was, what, was the, what was the time frame like there? When, when did you announce that, oh, hey, let's, let's go to this meeting? Was it, was it fast or did it take a while to get that many people committed to going? I think I had maybe a month's notice. Okay. Um, and what, so, so you're saying you had like a couple thousand likes on, on the Facebook page. Um, how, like how big was your outreach to people to be able to have, you know, a couple hundred people show up to, to a meeting? And, and if I understand correctly, you know, this is, this is county government and there's very rarely an issue that brings out that many people to one of these meetings, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, I think the reach, let's see. I had maybe 5,000 emails. Um, and then those people, I mean, they just, they forward those to other people. Um, and then at that time, we probably had like three, 4,000 likes on the Facebook page. Which again, people share that, and then we had signs up that had the meeting dates, you know, in the community as well. So that's people driving by. Okay. Um, could you give me a sense of the the time frame of of this movement? You know, like when did you when did you decide to to make this a thing, and then you know how long did it take you to get up to that you know couple thousand followers and. Uh, yeah, just just try to try to walk me through like a, a timeline of. Uh, I think of all it that. was August of two thousand thirteen when we first started. August of thirteen. Okay, so yeah. so, it it assem like it kind of did it did it grow it grew slowly over a period of yeah a couple of years you'd say or. Well, it grew pretty fast. That's okay. how we got the media attention because, you know, two thousand likes within one month, so that was a pretty quick growth, um, and then it was I guess over. The momentum in the beginning, then it was just consistent, consistent communications with the people. It didn't really 
grow. Like, there wasn't any boost of growth. It was just a constant growth. Okay. Um, I guess one thing I'm interested in that I think is, is maybe unique to this situation, um, I feel like a lot of the time when you're talking about a movement that's trying to uh, get a government to make a certain decision, um, oftentimes you're talking about pressuring the officials who are already there into doing what you want them to do. But this this seems seems unique in that you you obviously got to a point where you said, uh, okay, this isn't working. We need to change the government, um, and and you were successful in in an election. Um, that, that shocked a lot of people, winning, uh, I think it was by 14 points yeah. over uh, over an incumbent who had been on the commission for a really long time. So what what was that process like for you? Did you have, did you have it in the back of your mind from the beginning? Like, you know, maybe, maybe I will, um, you know, grab onto this issue and, and run for office on you using this as a, as a platform? Or was it a more gradual process where you just eventually figured out, okay, we need to try something else here? It was an eventual process. I mean, even when I decided, you know, this needs to happen, I was sitting back waiting for someone who I could stand behind to run instead. Because, I mean, I knew it would be a lot of work and hard on my family. And, you know, I knew it would be difficult. To run, so I didn't really want to put that on my family. Um, so I was waiting for someone who had to stand behind, but that person never came. <laughs> so I just said, "Okay." And I talked to my husband. And I was like, "Look, this is what we need to do, but I'm not going to do it unless you're 100% in with me." And he said, he thought about it for a couple of days or a week. I can't remember how long it was, but he's like, "Okay, let's do it." <laughs> so we both jumped in. Okay. 100% <laughs> and the kids jumped in too they were knocking on doors with us <laughs> that's great yeah um, I guess the, the next thing I'd want to ask about is um, what was it what was it like running for office against uh, you know an entrenched incumbent who was extremely good at fundraising who had you know way more experience and name recognition than you did? What, what, what was it like doing that? And and you had such a resounding victory. Um, are are there any pointers or strategy tips that you would give uh, to sort of political insurgents in the same situation as you in the future? Um. So. Stay your, be yourself. Stay true to your values. Um, don't change them based on what other people tell you. Because people are going to try to tell you how to do things and to do things a certain way because they know best. Um, but you need to stay true to yourself because people can see right through you if you're being fake. Um, people aren't stupid. <laughs> you know, they can see it. And so it's important that and just stay true to yourself. I mean, they were able to see through a lot of what was going on. Um, people are smart. They they pay attention. And as long as you depend on, you know, knowing that people are going to make the best decisions, then you have to keep moving forward with that. And you can't change just because you think, well, 
I need to change what I stand for because people are going to vote for me if I do that. You know, you can't do anything like that because in the end, well, if you lie, people always find out. That's, I don't like liars, I don't like to lie because people always find out when you lie. I mean, they do. So just stay truthful, keep moving forward, and you know, the truth will come out on its own. People will see the truth. And, and there's a lot of things that happen in government that I, people know what's wrong and they see it and they're really not saying anything but it will come out and how they react to it so sometimes you know you don't even have to say anything just keep moving forward um the organization you started which eventually became save orange county is that yeah. correct what what was the structure of that organization like was it just was it just you kind of like leading the charge um, did you end up bringing more people into leadership roles? And what, what did that process look like? And, and what, what did the structure end up, end up being of that organization? So I started it, but it took up a life of its own. <laughs> um, we did have some leadership issues because, and I don't really like to talk about it, but I, I was in the media a lot. I was kind of like the spokesperson because I started it. I was in... I was running everything like that was needed to run the organization, like the social media, the website, the email newsletter, all that stuff, all the marketing, I was doing all that. And um, the PR, um, even the strategic you know, strategy, I was you know, kept saying, this is what we need to do, this is what we need to do. But um, it grew to, I think, um, 18 people. And there was a point when they didn't want me being in front of the media anymore because they felt like they needed a white middle-aged male to represent them. And yeah, and they all agreed with that and I was just surprised that that was happening in front of me. And you know, someone who started the group and now I'm like being kind of booted out because I wasn't the right demographics um, to represent them. So, you know, afterwards I did write an email to the people who had made that decision and said I wasn't very happy with being disrespected like that for something like that, that I'm a well-educated uh, professional woman and, you know, it wasn't right. And so, you know, they were very um, conscious of how they behaved after that. Um, and the media still wanted me to, you know, to interview because um, I guess they saw that I was the one pushing everything. So that still, even though they were they want this other guy, the media kept calling me and wanting me to be the point person and then when I tried to put it to the other guy, he was working full time, so that wasn't working out anyway. So yeah, so after that, um, so you know, it started kind of moving in its own direction, taking its own life and we had leadership positions, we decided to incorporate, become a nonprofit, um, have a board. Um, there were other people who were chosen to be, you know, the president or chairperson, vice chair, and everything. Um, what, what other kinds of, of positions did you have? Because I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, um, potentially for other um, movements that need to start up like this, um, it would be it would be neat to see for them maybe a potential blueprint for how their organization could be organized. So what, what did all those positions well, look like? Well, my first could... thing, I learned a lot. 
let me just say that I learned a lot um, from that experience. I, so the mistakes that I had made, I won't make again. One thing, if you want to start um, a movement, it is good to incorporate. Um, in Florida, you have to have a minimum of three people, to have three board members to have a nonprofit. So I would definitely um, start it first before you get other people involved who don't know. And don't, you know, you don't know if you can trust them, you don't know what their character is like. So you want to have those three board members be yourself and two other people who you really, really trust. Because, um, I mean, this it's happened to a lot of people that have started movements or started nonprofits and had that taken away from them, from somebody else. I mean, I know so many times, like, after doing that and getting into, like, learning about other nonprofits and meeting other people who've done it, it's happened to them like once or twice. So it's a common thing that happens. So it's good to start it off and have people who you really know and trust as those three board members so that it can't get away from you. Okay. Um, you mentioned a decision that was made or, or I guess almost made that you feel was based on uh, your um, gender and, and possibly race and um, I think I think a lot of the time people you know and, and I don't know it was it was it an ideologically diverse group of people who were fighting this uh, was it mostly people on the left or uh, as far as far as the people fighting the development or did that not really even never come up um, that never came up but the majority were Republican Mm, okay. um, if you want to look at Republican or Democrat, um, I was the only minority female in the group, and there was only one black male. I mean, so, it was, you know, it wasn't demographically diverse. Okay. What, what would you say for other people, perhaps in a similar position where they're trying to start a movement like this, um, but the, the community or the environment that they're in um, might be, you know, a, a racist or, or a sexist community in certain ways. Do you have any uh, pointers for how how those kinds of discrimination can be fought sort of within a movement or a, a organization that's looking to, to create change? I don't know, that's like yeah, a... If, yeah. if, if we had the answer to that question, we'd, we'd solve a lot of problems. I was just wondering if you had any um, insight. Well, I guess, like, in politics, sometimes you have to know what battles to fight and so like in in my case it's like just focus on what the it, what we're trying to the movement the issue um but just focus on that even though there's these other things going on um find what we all can get behind and so in politics it's the same way you have to pick your battles um so, I mean, I couldn't change their ideology, you know, it's just impossible. <laughs> but, you know, just by being me and moving forward, you know, you would think that you could change people's, you know, outlook on, you know, maybe in the future when they meet another young Hispanic female that, you know, I made an impression on them that, you know, well, young Hispanic females are very smart. <laughs> So, you know, organized and um, motivated and passionate 
and you know hard workers because that's what I was and um, I know they saw that <laughs> so hopefully I left a good impression on them that you know they could look at future young Hispanic females as that as well that whatever you know whatever made them think that they needed a white middle-aged male to represent them isn't the case anymore. You know, now, well, I was elected as their representative now, that should say something. Sure. So now, maybe I proved to them that they don't need a white middle-aged male to represent them. That isn't the only type of person who can represent them. That a young Hispanic female can now represent them. And maybe in the future more can as well. Um, okay, I, I know we've, we've been here for, for a, a little while now, and I, I've only really like got two more questions. Um, when you're looking at a, a movement, um, and in this case also a, a, a political campaign for office, where you're, the constituents that you're looking at are going to be, you know, probably a lot of them are, are, are going to be conservative. Um, you know, for, for example, like I know that you in um, some of the precincts out in East Orange County where all of this you know development stuff is going on, all the, there's some you know, precincts in that area around these proposed developments where you know Donald Trump won two-thirds of the vote and then you win two-thirds of the vote. What, what would you say how, how, how would you balance between, what you said earlier about being yourself and not trying to change yourself while running, but then also trying to, you know, win and make and, and you know actually take a step forward by having a political victory in an area that is uh, mostly conservative. How how would you reconcile those two things? Um. Well, I think they chose Trump and they chose me for the same reasons. <laughs> okay. Because they wanted to change. Um, they wanted something really different, and I mean, we can all admit Trump is really different. <laughs> you know, he's not. We can agree on that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, they wanted something different, and that's what they got. You know, um, a lot of people didn't really believe he was going to do a lot of things that he said, but you know, I think, um, yeah, I guess we can't believe a lot of the things he said, but some of the things we could. Um, I'll just leave that for the next couple of years. We'll see what happens. Sure. But me, yeah, I was different. I wasn't what we had in there. And so just like they were looking for a change with him, they were looking for a change with me as well. So last thing, I just kind of want to open it up to you. In your experiences in the, the movement to stop the Lake Picket developments, um, is there anything you would want to say to people in a similar situation who want to make change in their community but, but aren't sure how? What advice would you give uh, to those people based on what you've been able to accomplish? Well, number one, we wouldn't have been in this situation if some people wouldn't have been elected in the first place. So you have to definitely watch who you're electing, do your research. Um, find out what they really stand for. Their, their postcards that they send out may not be the truth. You know, they could say that they're, let's say, an environmentalist, but they're really not. They're developer-friendly and looking to pave over everything. 
So I can't believe everything that they loves trees. Yeah. So I can't believe everything that they send you. You have to do your research. Um, so who are their friends? I mean, if you're an attorney representing developers, chances are you know you may not be someone who environmentalists would want to elect. You know, is are they going to look out for the environment? But if they're representing developers who are responsible developers, then hey, you know, maybe that would be someone good to elect because they are responsible. But you don't know that if you, if you don't do the research. So you definitely have to do the research in whom you're electing, and that's where everything has to start. Because, like, in our case, I mean, we would not have gotten anywhere without the election. So I, it all came down really to the politics and the election at the, in the end. Otherwise, we'd have never had any successes, no matter how many petition signatures or people we had at the meeting. And that's very disappointing to admit. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to say on the topic or any questions you feel like I forgot to ask? No, I really Okay. All right. Thanks so much. All right. So thank you for uh, taking the time to interview. That was very insightful. Um, what stuck out to you as you were speaking with her? Um, some of the things that stuck out to me uh, regarding the um, movement was that it, it was very fast-growing and yeah. it used social media and other electronic elements to achieve that growth. Um, it's, it's really interesting, too. I think this is a really good reminder of you know, if if you're one person who wants to change something, you it's you can't really you know um, convince thousands of people to join you overnight. But if you have an issue that thousands of other people have, um, really all you need to do is figure out a way to tap into those feelings and the most effective way to channel those feelings in a direction that will make some sort of change. And I think that's what we saw here, is that really um, all that Emily Bonilla uh, needed to do to get this thing off the ground was create a website, create a Facebook page, create an online petition um, to, get that, um, to get that frustration with this planned development sort of all under one banner. Um, and then at that point, it was it was easy for her and other leaders to just sort of you know turn this cannon of thousands of angry residents in whatever direction it needed to go for the change to happen. Right. So, yeah, I I thought that was a very interesting thing, sort of uh, highlighting the the importance of outreach and you know attraction and promotion in this because I I do think that they're a, in many contexts, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of discontent, um, but I think a lot of people uh, are individual. I, as we kind of mentioned earlier, I think a lot of a lot of people live in this world where the uh, uh, the primary mechanism of change is seen to be consumer choice, like you know, what you do is what you buy, um, and so I, I think it's quite extraordinary whenever uh, people can be reached and be and you know, kind of get this idea that broader change and unity are things that actually are possible uh, for all of us. And you know, for a lot, of, a lot of people are ready and are willing to work and to make changes in their lives and in the broader world. They just haven't actually been, they just haven't, got, haven't actually gotten that knock on their, on their door, even if it's just the digital door. 
Um, so I, I think that the, you know, the, the outreach here was uh, quite extraordinary in terms of what it was actually able to, what it was actually able to accomplish in this context. Sure, and I, and I think as far as some uh, some specific, excuse me, some specific strategic things that this movement did um, that you, the listener, might be able to um, take away from for any movement you might be planning is um, is the power of online petitions, not just to you know point at a number and say, hey, I have five thousand people who oppose this or whatever, but it also uh, one of one of the sort of I don't want to say sneakier, but one of the kind of side effects of petitions is if you set it up in the in the correct way, it can say, okay, sign here, put your name, put your email address, etc. So people will use the petition because they want their voice to be heard, and you can point to the number of how many signatures it has. But petitions can also be a very useful method um, if they're getting shared on the right platforms to actually collect contact information from people who are interested in your movement so that when there's another step that they need to take to uh, make it happen, that you can reach out to them via that contact info you've collected with it. So mm -hmm. I, I think um, that's a good, um, a good, a good thing to remember from this from this movement is that that online petition kind of worked in that way mm -hmm. for for Emily and for her movement. Right. Um, yeah, and and it's and it's interesting too talking to her about. Um, you know, I believe at one point in the interview, I asked her, hey, was there any, you know, door-to-door -door canvassing? Were you knocking on people's doors? And she essentially told me, no, not really, that it was mostly um, digital. And, and, it, and it's crazy to think sometimes, sometimes we think that online presence for these sorts of things doesn't necessarily translate into in-person action. But she was able to get 300 people to show up to a county commission meeting. Mm. Uh, now, if you've never been to a meeting of the Orange County commissioners um, or, or to a local government, I mean, just, just think of like a local like city hall or school board or, or, or county commission meeting. There's usually not that many people there. You know, there's, there's a, a, probably a couple hundred seats, but there's, they're never all full. So just the idea of having 300 people in one of those meetings is, is nuts. And the fact that she was able to get them there basically through a Facebook event and an email call to arms is, again, just another testament to the power of technology in organizing in, in the current age. Right. You sometimes have trouble getting that kind of uh, excitement and turnout for national elections. And usually what we see, um, especially on the political left, is people get extremely excited and come out for uh, presidential elections. So the political involvement for a lot of people basically just means checking one box every four years and then letting uh, the powers that be uh, run their course at, as things dictate. A lot of people don't know uh, the first thing about their local political situation, and so to have this many people uh, be interested and be engaged, and but actually show up and actually speak uh, for this long is a, an extraordinary accomplishment, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, and it was also interesting looking at the time frame of this movement too, um, how it started in uh, the fall of 2013, and it grew, it grew very quickly. Um, with that online presence, but the the process, excuse me, the process of getting those movements approved was such a such a drawn out process that this movement had to sustain its momentum over several years 
um, basically through to the general election of 2016. So that's that's three years that this movement was going on. And again, I think that's another testament to the power of social media and um, and technology in these sorts of movements because um, you know if you can have you know several thousand followers on your page, and even if you know the meeting isn't for another couple of months, you can continue sharing things and try to keep keep your audience and keep your people engaged um, to make sure that they're still um, still paying attention and still motivated to do what it is that that, that they want to do. Right. Um, and a- another interesting thing, in my opinion, was talking to Commissioner Bonilla about her thought process in deciding to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think you hear a lot about what they call the, um, the bystander effect. You know, when someone is you know, crying for help in the middle of a crowd in New York City or, or you know, someplace where there's a lot of people. And there's a lot of people there, but but no one helps because psychologically the the responsibility of that is sort of diffused amongst all the people. Oh, I don't have to do anything. Someone else will do something because there's so many people here. And then everyone thinks that and nothing happens. So I think this is maybe a lesson in not falling victim to a political bystander effect, you could say. Because, you know, if you're part of a movement and that movement isn't going to work unless you elect new people, um, you can't just sit there and say, oh, well, why won't someone run? Why won't someone do something? Well, guess what? You are someone and you can do something. So if you find yourself in the midst of one of these movements um, and you think someone needs to run for office and no one is doing it, do it because like this shows us you never know what can happen and you might win sometimes sometimes you win right yeah i think that speaks to one of the issues that we talked about earlier where uh, we have tremendous engagement in presidential elections or in larger elections where people um want to elect someone who will take care of it for them uh, whenever something happens so like something oh man somebody has to take care of this of course someone is going to take care of this we have elected uh, the person who is going to take care of everything for us. And I think what this kind of tends to is this is a situation where people basically just don't like to think about politics. They don't like to care about politics. Um, they basically like to outsource politics to the proper specialists and then just be able to sit back and forget about it and sort of let politics take care of itself, um, which as we've seen, you know, politics doesn't exactly work that way. Politics is an everyday thing. Um, so it's infused in our everyday interactions and it, uh, is present at all, all levels of government, especially in the local government, wherein we actually have uh, the greatest amount of control. And so that's something that everybody can uh, everybody can get involved in with, especially whenever they feel like someone else, because once that critical threshold is passed, um, once you notice you're like, ah, man, somebody else has to take care of this because it has reached that level, um, once you find that, those presumptions kicking in, uh, that is the opportune time to step in because you know that the, that the circumstances have, have presented themselves and the time is right to strike. Right, right. Um, and I think one of, one of the last things I wanted to talk about about this movement is uh, one, of the, one of the sort of interesting things about this movement in particular is that it wasn't really a, an, an ideologically cohesive group. In fact, as um, as Commissioner Bonilla pointed out in the interview, it was mostly conservative people. The The area that 
um, that these developments were going up in is, is mostly a conservative area. Um, and it just it speaks to the frustration against these movements that there are actually a lot of precincts in that area where Donald Trump won with two-thirds of the vote. Right. And a progressive Democrat who was against, basically running on being against these developments, also had two-thirds of the vote in some of these precincts. So sometimes you'll find yourself in a movement where maybe not everyone is on the left, or maybe not everyone is on the right. Maybe it's a it's a, a mix of a lot of different kinds of people. And so and dealing with that uh, ideological diversity in a movement is, is sort of an, an interesting thing to make sure that you think about. And it can also lead to what, um, what she said that she suffered, which was, uh, uh, but she sees as some deal of racism and sexism that was in that movement uh, because she is a, she's a Hispanic woman and most of the people in that area are, are white. So, um, is there anything that, that you have to add about that? I don't know if you have any more, uh, experience, um, with, with seeing racism and sexism come into play, even within these movements, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that might be an issue that some of our listeners sure. may have to deal with at some point. Um, I think this is a big challenge when it comes to coalitions in general. Um, I think, I mean, the, the first instinct would be to find it absurd to demand that everybody sign a, an oath of ideological and moral purity before they vote for your candidate. Um, it seems it, it seems like a guaranteed way to uh, to make sure that nobody nobody actually votes for your candidate if you if you hold everybody to extreme standards. Um, I, but so I, I think that ha- having some space for ideological diversity can be an important thing um, within movements such as these. Um, and and of course, like a, ce- a central issue is like, whenever we t- come to like policing within a movement, um, this can lead to a lot of uh, you know jockeying and power struggles. Um, but um, I think, you know, a, a lot of issues like this stuff just sort of have to be um, have to be faced um, because this is society the way that it is. Um, and the question is, do people who uh, present uh, big traits uh, such as race, uh, do racist people or sexist people, um, do they basically deserve to suffer? Do they deserve to be uh, underrepresented? Um, does their racism or sexism automatically disqualify them from uh, basic human concerns? Um, and but then the question comes: like, is it possible to make them? Uh, do we demand of them that they become less racist or sexist before they uh, participate in our movements, um, or do we kind of understand that uh, um, allowing them space within our movements can be a way for for us to educate them? Because the the first role of an activist is education and the first role of an act the first role of an activist is to bring people new information that they don't have and to change the minds of people that we disagree with even people who we find to be unpleasant um now i will say all of that with the caveat that it is extremely easy for me to say because i'm a white man and i don't really face these kinds of pressures um i don't have to uh undergo these kinds of struggles on a day-to-day basis um, this, these are the kinds of things that I see um, in terms of ha- having it be a, a important to both have a space where you can uh, have solidarity and be understood, have, have your vulnerabilities be present and supported exactly as they are, and also have the capacity to go out into the world and affect change with people who are extraordinarily unpleasant, maybe even disgusting, uh, but who nevertheless 
deserve the opportunity to be educated and deserve the opportunity to be heard um, when it comes to their material concerns that might be orthogonal to these to these issues. So that that's kind of what I have off the top of my head on those on those things. Um, uh, what do you think about that, Alex? Um, I I think I agree mostly with what with what you said, and just that that's um, that. You know, if you're if you're listening to this and there's a movement that you want to start or a movement that you're a part of, that that those are those are questions that you're going to have to ask yourself to figure out um, to figure out what your priorities are and um, you know and how much how much ideological um, homogeny I guess you can you can afford to have in your movement with whatever it is you're trying to do. So. Again, just just the fact that she that she brought those up, I think is is good to educate uh, people because as we've seen, even even on movements that are comprised entirely of people on the left, um, that racism and sexism can still definitely be issues within within Absolutely. those movements. Mm-hmm. So um, now I I was as you could probably hear, I was the one that was conducting this interview with the commissioner. Uh, Max actually wasn't there. So Max, do you have do you have any questions? Um, for me, as far as um, as far as you know, how how the interview went, or things things that you might have asked her if you were there. Um. No, I can't. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I think you did a, a really good job, and I was really excited to see the uh, just sort of see highlighted the role, the the interesting role of the uh, individual within a movement. I mean, obviously, you can't go and talk to. Uh, every single person who uh, is participating in some sort of mass movement. Um, but so I, I think it's important to you know, be able to talk to individuals, but it's also important to highlight the way that uh, the individual, the way the individual fits within the broader ecosystem um, of the movement, which I think you did an excellent job of highlighting. Okay. Well, well, thanks for that, Max. Um, so really appreciate you guys listening to this. Um, so this was, this is basically it for episode one of Sometimes People Win. We're going to be releasing these on a uh, on a bi-weekly basis, just so once every other week, hopefully around Sunday or Monday. Um, so we just wanted to thank everyone who's listening um, and all of our supporters. Uh, we do actually have a Patreon supporter, so thank you very much to Christopher Deese. And um, if you are interested in donating, you can uh, look us up on patreon.com. Uh, the address is just patreon.com slash sometimes people win. Um, and we are on Facebook. Again, we're on Patreon. We're also on SoundCloud. So you can contact us through any of those venues if you have any ideas for some uh, specific movements that you would like us to cover. Um, so, yeah, this is Alex Storer uh, we're signing off for Sometimes People Win. Max Jackson here. Christopher Deese, you're the best. Uh, keep it coming, buddy. We got you. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Alex here. Special thanks to Music by David Pfau for the instrumentals you heard in this podcast. You can find him on YouTube at youtube.com slash freemetalsongs. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to us on iTunes or on SoundCloud. You can also find us on Facebook and on Patreon at patreon.com slash sometimes people win. Thanks for listening.